This is Emmanuel Today, taking steps toward God's possible in your life. On today's program, guest speaker Pastor Lee Cummings shares a very detailed message entitled, New Wine, Fresh Oil, and Old Fire. God doesn't give us an overcoming life with no pressure. He gives us life as we overcome through pressure. Let's find out more as we join Pastor Lee Cummings right now. Every once in a while, there are messages that God gives to you, not just as a pastor, but as a prophetic voice that goes beyond the four walls of the church that you steward. And this is one of those messages. I've entitled it, New Wine, Fresh Oil, and Old Fire. And what I want to talk to you about tonight is I want to talk to you about the subject of revival. Uh, A couple years ago, probably two or three years ago, the Lord began to stir inside of me a focus and an attention to the subject of revivals, awakenings, renewals that have taken place. In fact, I was having dreams about revival. I was having vivid dreams uh, and prophetic words that were being given to me just one right after the other that had to deal with the subject of revival. And years and years ago, uh, I had read many books about different revivals and different awakenings that had taken place. And a couple years ago, it seemed like the Lord, the Holy Spirit was stirring that up in my heart. And so I began to reread and I began to go back and look at notes and things that I'd written. And I was asking the Lord, Lord, why are you seemingly focusing on this particular subject? And he says, because for two reasons. Number one, it's what I have scheduled on my calendar for the church in America. And I want to prepare the church and I want you to prepare your church. But beyond that, I want you to carry a message everywhere that you go outside of the church that will provoke the body of Christ to ask God to let it rain once again. And out of that came this message. And I want to begin by reading a text from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. And I'm reading from the New English translation, the Net translation. It says this. It says, Lord, I have heard the news about you. I am amazed at what you have done. Lord, do great things once again in our time. Make those things happen again in our own days. Even when you are angry, remember to be kind. I think one translation says, even in your judgment, Lord, remember mercy. And I love this scripture because it echoes the words of the song that we just sang. Lord, I know that you've moved mountains. I've seen what you've done. I've heard of your great exploits. Lord, do it again. Do it in our day. And what I have come to discover is that there are so many in the body of Christ, so many in our generation that are alive and in the church that love Jesus with all all of their heart, that give faithfully, that serve faithfully, that are, are doing everything that they can to raise families, go to work, believe, to make a difference through their lives, but they have absolutely no idea of what God has done in the past. And you know, we have a saying that what you don't know can't hurt you. I think it's the exact opposite when it comes to the history of what God has done. It's what you don't know that actually can steal from you. Hosea says this, my people are 
destroyed or my people perish for lack of knowledge. You see, what you don't know that God has done, you can't believe for him to do again. There's something powerful that happens when we pray. It's when testimonies become prophecies. It's when a testimony of what God has done in somebody else's life or done in another time, we get a hold of it and we begin to ask God, do it again in our day. And it becomes a prophetic testimony. It becomes a prophetic statement that we actually call into being. And I believe if there has ever been a time in our culture, in our society, in Western civilization where we need a mighty move of God, it is today. I'm not just talking about church services within the four walls of our church. That's the starting point. But I'm talking about culture-shifting, world-changing, body of Christ-renewing, miracle-outbreaking revivals and awakenings. God has done it before, and I believe that he wants to do it again. And I want to see God do that again. I echo the words of Habakkuk who says, Lord, I've heard about it, but I want to see it in your day. Right now, what's happening in the North American context is we are seeing the first generation emerge on the face of our culture. In fact, two generations, millennials and Gen Z, anyone that's probably anywhere from like 38 all the way down to 12 right now, are the two largest demographic generations that American history has ever seen. One's about 68 million, the other's about 62 million. They together form about 50% of the population of America and growing. And they are the first two generations that have emerged on the scene that have not had a awakening or a revival that has taken place in the midst of their generation. And in a generation where we have 50% of our population that emerges that has, has no idea of what God has done in the past, and in the midst of a culture where it seems that there's a deviation that is taking place away from traditional, historic, biblical, Judeo-Christian values, and it's been said that we are a post-Christian culture, that... Christianity's best days are behind us. We find ourselves at a time much like the season of Israel's history where God raised up a man named Elijah, who was a prophet to the people of God, calling them back to righteousness, calling them back to the Lord. In fact, uh, not too long ago, on I, I believe it was on Newsweek magazine, they put a picture of Lady Gaga and a picture of Mike Pence, and they said that Lady Gaga is the picture of the future of Christianity in America. I remember seeing that and thinking to myself, there is a reforming and a remolding that is taking place within our culture, trying to reshape Christianity, syncretize it with secularistic, hedonistic values, domesticate Christianity, domesticate the church so that we become culturally accommodated and we actually lose our identity. And the antidote, the only antidote to that is a move of God. And so over the last couple of years, I've gone back and I've been looking at the keys to revival in great awakenings that have taken place. I mean, things that maybe you know about, but things like the first great awakening under Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he stood up and preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it sparked what was called the first great awakening 
in America, even before we were an independent nation, a first great awakening swept across the eastern seaboard and hundreds of thousands of souls were saved and brought back into the kingdom of God. Sometimes we can have a tendency to think, well, 100, 200, 300 years ago, everybody was puritanical, everybody was a Christian. But if you look at history, it was always in the darkest hours where God then ignited a revival. First great awakening was no different. Upstate New York, God transformed the life of a lawyer named Charles Finney, who began to preach in small little churches all across upstate New York. He was invited to preach in New York, and he was invited to preach New York City, and he was invited to preach in Utica. And instead of going to New York, he went to the small town of Utica, and it ignited what was known as the Second Great Awakening. The Cane Ridge revivals that took place in Kentucky, where people would, by horse and carriage, travel days in order to go there, and the presence of God was so profound that people were pinned to the ground under conviction of the Holy Spirit, and prayer meetings were birthed out of that. Circuit riders of the Methodist church, like George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, that moved all over England, and George Whitfield, who came to North America during the First Great Awakening, was a part of our heritage. There was a man in Wales, England, whose name was Evan Roberts, who was just a uneducated small son of a coal miner who would pray and pray and pray and ask God to move in a powerful, miraculous way in their small little Wales town. And he prayed this prayer, Lord, bend us. Think about those words. God, bend us to your will. And out of that came the Welsh revival that swept across Wales and even to this day has impacted nations around the world. The turn of the century, there was an African-American holiness preacher by the name of William J. Seymour, blind in one eye who had heard about a man named Charles Parham that at his Bible college had experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism. And while Charles Parham was in Houston, William J. Seymour went to hear this message because he had been hungry for a move of God. And because he was an African-American, he was not allowed in the service. But instead of being offended, he sat outside and he listened to the message because his hunger for a move of God was stronger than his racial offense. And as he heard the words, his life was so impacted he received the power of the Holy Spirit and he carried that message out to Los Angeles and set up shop in a small little mission called Azusa Street where God poured out the Pentecostal outpouring of the 21st century that today went from Azusa Street to impacting almost 700 million believers around the globe. I mean, God has done some crazy things. In California during the 60s, during the hippie movement and the counterculture movement, God raised up a man named Chuck Smith and a few others who had churches, and all of a sudden they began to see these hippies walk in and bare feet and shag hair and peace, bro, and you know had marijuana smoke pouring out of their minivans as they pulled up into the church parking lot. As everybody's walking in with their 50-pound King James heathen chokers and their nice you know, plaid suits and their pretty shoes, all these hippies began to parade in, and Chuck Smith, instead of kicking them out, began to baptize them in the Pacific Ocean. And the Jesus movement, the Jesus people movement, emerged in the 60s that radically changed and transformed the face of Christianity. You know, revival after revival after revival has taken place, and that's just, that's just a sampling of things that God has done even in the last 100, 150 years. Would God do such a thing in our day? 
I believe that he wants to. What is the future of Christianity in America? Is it Lady Gaga? Is it even Mike Pence? Or is it something that we've never seen before? Is it a new expression, a new generation, a new people that are emerging on the scene with a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit? As I began to dig in, the Lord began to show me three things that are necessary for us to become and to step the church, to step into the anointing of Elijah. Because if you look at 1 Kings chapter 18, when he faced off against the prophets of Baal, it was a battle over who controlled the rain. And I want to ask the question, who controls the rain? Rains are the rains of revival. The church is called to be the Elijah of our day. But what is necessary? What are the characteristics that God is looking for? And what is the process by which God brings the church through to prepare it for the reigns of revival? I believe there are three facets to what God is looking for and what God does. The first one is new wine. The second is fresh oil. And the third is old fire. I want to take a few moments on each of these. Number one, let me talk to you about new wine. Revival will come when there is new wine. New wine is always indicative in the Bible of a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We recall scriptures like Acts chapter 2 verse 13 where on the day of Pentecost when they were all gathered together in verse 13 and the Holy Spirit was poured out. It says that they were all filled with new wine, but Peter standing with the 11, and, and, and in fact, everybody was mocking them, saying they were filled with new wine, but Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and said, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my word. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is the third hour, but this is that. Oh, I love that statement. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel when he said that in the last days, declares the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter said, this is that. The crowd looked at him and said, these guys are drunk on new wine. But Peter said, no, this is the result of a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we know what took place you know, from that point on, 12 disciples and 120 in an upper room turned into 3,000 on the first day, and then 5,000, and then they went from addition to multiplication, and then they were described as those who turned the world upside down. And the book of Acts, which has no ending to it, ends with the last word that Paul continued to preach the gospel unhindered. And it turned the world upside down. What started as new wine change the world. You and I are here today because of that fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, at different times throughout church history, God has poured out new wine into new vessels. In fact, Jesus said that the requirement for new wine is new wineskins. He makes this reference in Matthew 19 that you don't put new wine into old wineskins because it will burst its seams. So when God is about to pour out new wine, he begins by reshaping and recrafting a new wineskin. Why? Because old wineskins are brittle. They, when the new wine that is still fermenting and still bubbling and still has life in it meets this rigid form and shape that isn't going to give and has no flexibility, it begins to build gas up that then burst the wineskin, but a new wineskin has flexibility. And whenever God's about to pour out a fresh 
outpouring of his Holy Spirit, he begins by getting his people to think differently, embracing new paradigms in preparation for the new wine. Listen, sometimes we say, God, I need a new outpouring. I need a new infilling of the Holy Spirit. He says, in order to do that, I'm gonna have to change your mindsets. Can I just tell you something? The days of Christianity as usual are over. The days where we just assume that everybody, our neighbors, and that everybody celebrates Christianity and celebrates our faith, uh, those days are over, but I think it's actually a good thing because it's causing the church to have to rethink. It's causing us to have to think outside of the box a little bit, put our old wineskins away. I know that we've liked things a certain way for a long time, but it's time for us to embrace a new wineskin, a new sound that's gonna come into the house of God. Listen, you know you're getting old when new worship leaders start singing songs and you're just like, why can't we sing the old songs? I asked the Lord that one time, just in prayer. I'm like, Lord, why don't we just, why can't we sing the old songs? And he's like, did you read Psalms? I said, sing unto the Lord a new song. Because every new generation and every new revival and every new outpouring of the Holy Spirit has a new song and it has a new sound to it. It's a new paradigm, church. We have to become the new wineskins so that we can receive a new wine. Do you know that Ephesians 5.18, Paul admonishes us, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled over and over and over and over and over again with the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live as a power-filled, devoted follower of Jesus in this day without a fresh, ongoing infilling of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to emphasize the Holy Spirit less. We need to emphasize the Holy Spirit more. We need to say, Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. We need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We need God to send the fire today. We need a fresh, new Pentecost. It's not enough for us to run on half a tank. One of the things in our marriage that Jane and I uh, sometimes go back and forth on is uh, she likes her gas tank and her car to be above half. If it gets at half... She gets nervous, and she's like, will you go fill my gas tank up? Well, sure, babe, but you got a lot of gas left. And unlike her, I like to see how far I can get it down. <laughs> Anybody else like that? Come on, you're in church, don't lie. In fact, it's, a, it's kind of a contest for me, because I know that somewhere, you know, back in the day, you just had to guess, right? That orange dial would kind of, like, and you're just like, hmm, I think I can still see some space between the E and the orange dial. And it was a science. But now we have technology that ding, and it, tell, and it shows you on the screen, you have 54 miles left, 17 miles left. Can I just tell you, I don't believe it. I think somewhere there's an engineer who's like, dumb Americans, they will run out of gas and cause traffic jams, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna build in a certain number of miles that we don't tell them that they have, and we're gonna tell them that they've only got 20, but they probably have 29. It is my mission in life to find out how far that is. <laughs> and I'll drive with Jane in the car, and she'll be, she gets so mad at me, so nervous. It's like, come on. And I'm just like, no, we're going for it, baby. This is Thelma and Louise. Let's go. We're going to see how far we can go on this. One time my son bet me. He's like, Dad, you won't really do it. I'm like, get in the car. We were on our way to a Michigan State basketball game. And I said, watch this. 
I said, what does it say? It says zero miles. I said, here we go. And we got to 17 miles and he got nervous. He's like, dad, oh, come on, I give up. I'm just like, no. So I pulled off, I had mercy on him. But I know it was far more than 17 miles because I know that you can go a lot further than you think you can. That's fun to do in our vehicles, but we can't live our spiritual lives like that. We can't live in our, we can't live as people that are seeing how close to the line of being empty and depleted by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled continually, every day with the Holy Spirit. We gotta keep our tanks full and overflowing. We don't wanna be like those five virgins who in the moment that was most critical, we were trying to borrow oil from somebody else. We can't borrow oil from other people. There's no such thing as secondhand anointing. We need new wine, and every time that God has sparked a revival, he started, it was stirring a hunger in people that results in a new way of thinking, and then God fills the new way of thinking with a fresh outpouring of his Holy Spirit. We need new wine, and we also need fresh oil. You know, when you look in the, the pages of Scripture, oil is always representative of anointing. In the Old Testament, Moses was commanded to create a certain formula of oil that was to be applied to everything that was sacred. Every instrument that was used, every utensil that was used, and the priesthood, kings, were anointed with oil because the oil represented the anointing. And in order for us to be prepared and to be the people that God wants to use to bring renewal and revival. And let me just tell you something. God doesn't just want to raise up pastors and preachers and evangelists to bring the revival that I'm talking about. This is what I mean by a new paradigm. God is about to take the anointing and the ministry calling into the marketplace. He's about to raise up apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers that work in cubicles and in classrooms and in doctor's offices and in university hallways. God is raising up a new troop, a new group of fivefold ministers that don't even have titles, but they are positioned in the right places. And they're operating in a fresh anointing. A fresh anointing. Just like olive oil that is symbolic of the anointing, the new anointing that God wants to release on the church comes as a result of pressure being applied. You see, if, if you understand how oil is made, olive oil is made, it begins with an olive tree and then the plucking of the olive fruit. And when I've been over in Israel, they show you these ancient oil presses where they would take the, the olive when it was ripe and they would place it in this, this crushing cylinder and then they would take a heavy stone and they would roll the stone over the top of the olives and the pressure that was applied to the ripened fruit would release the oil that would then drain and then be captured before it was contaminated. Let me speak to you about the third one, which is old fire. Second Timothy chapter one, it says, when I call into remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded as in you also. I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God 
has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It says to stir up the gift of God. Other translations say fan into flame. Fan into flame. Have you ever made a fire before and, you know, when you start it, that thing is rip-roaring. In fact, there's nothing more fun than making fire, is there? I mean, we, we rented a cabin this last uh, summer for our family, and every morning I'd get up and I'd make a big old fire. And there's an art to it. There's a science to it. I love to play with fire. Jane hates fire. I love fire. It's like, man, I want to stack that thing. I want to douse it. I want There's just something manly about making a fire. But if you leave the fire for too long, it begins to die down. And you have to come back and you have to poke it, move it around a little bit, get some oxygen cycling, fan into flame. This is what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do, and he's speaking to him about old fire. And when the Lord spoke to me about old fire, my response was this, Lord, what, why not new fire? And he's, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, I want you to go and study fire. And so I did. I'm like, you know, I don't know where you look. I, I found some books uh, on Kindle, and I, I looked on Google, some different things on the history of fire. And you know, what's really interesting is that it's the, the idea that fire is easily accessible is a very new idea. The fact that you can just go over to your stove and turn it on and you get a flame is a very new idea. The, the fact that we have a furnace with a natural gas line that's plugged into it or propane, and it just produces fire, a pilot flame, and so we have instant heat. That's a very new idea. Hot water heaters, very new idea. For most of human history, fire was a very expensive and a very, uh, a, a very easy-to-lose commodity. If you had it, you had life. And if you lost it, you had death. So as I began to study about fire, I began to... Uh, to find in my research that in many, many cultures, even up to the last hundred years, some of the most important people in any civilization were called fire keepers. These were people that took care of the fire. You might even remember in the Old Testament, it says that the flame on the altar of the Lord must be kept perpetually. Don't allow the fire on the altar to go out. Church, we're not called to be products. We're called to be prophets. God's looking for those who will be entrusted with the embers, ignited with the oil, filled with the wine. He's looking for fire carriers. I want to be a carrier of the flame. I want to set my generation on fire. Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Today. You can learn more about the various ministries that Emmanuel offers and see Sunday services live every week. Check out emmanuelcc.org for details. Please be sure to tell others about this broadcast that they could enjoy next week at this same time.